Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to the Politico Nerdcast, where we bring you inside the stories of the White House and geek out on the amazing circus of American politics. It's Thursday, December the 1st, and I'm Kristen Roberts, your host. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. Seven. That's how many cabinet appointments Trump has officially made so far. Zero to 94, the ratio of at-the-mic statements to tweets that have come from the president-elect since Election Day. 25, the number of Democratic Senate seats that are up in 2018, and 10 of which are in states Trump won. And... 134, the number of votes Nancy Pelosi won in her bid to hold on to a leadership position in the minority party in the House. Grab your calculators and enjoy the Politico Nerdcast. Here we go again. Hello to Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. Welcome back. Thank you. Hi, Scott Bland. Hi, Kristen. Great to be here. And Ken Vogel. Hey. Let's get to our first data point. It is the number seven. That's the number of cabinet appointments Donald Trump has officially made so far. Ken, tell us, what do we know about these people? Any patterns emerging so far? Yeah, we see, I mean, we don't see all insiders necessarily, but we certainly see a lot of people who are insiders and even the people who are outsiders who haven't been involved with Republican politics in the past are pretty much, you know, uh, adhere to certain Republican orthodoxies and aren't the sort of populist that we would necessarily have expected from listening to Donald Trump on the campaign trail. I mean, you know, bringing in uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, yeah, an outsider, but not really like an economic populist. Steve Mnuchin, same thing, a Goldman Sachs guy. Um, You know, I think that... that there's probably the potential for there to be some dissatisfaction among his base with some of these picks. That said, there's plenty for the Republican establishment to feel uh, sort of placated about and to set their their, uh, anxious nerves at ease because Donald Trump is playing the game very much the way we've seen it play with past Republican administrations thus far. I think that's an important point to make that uh, some of the Trump picks have placated the Republican establishment because that was a really big question. And, you know, I think if you had to say there's two really big questions that people had after the day after the Trump election, one was the, quote, temperament issue. And uh, the other was the competence issue. And so while we still don't know in in terms of Donald Trump how he's going to respond as president, Now he's had some picks that have uh, given official uh, Washington and Republicans a peek inside the kind of people he'll appoint. And I think uh, they're feeling a lot better about it now that you see people like Nikki Haley, some members of Congress, whether you uh, like Jeff Sessions or not, you're at least familiar with him. He is a a longstanding member of the Senate. You've got Mike Pompeo from Kansas uh, in the CIA post. And so suddenly you see some names that I think have really tamped down a lot of the worry on the Republican side, at least. Well, it's an incredibly conservative cabinet so far, is it not? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that does jump out, um, you know, that, that we're not seeing any real, uh, not you know, sort of movement to the center on even on issues where, like, he 
has something in common with, say, the liberal base, like on trade, you know? I mean, uh, the, I guess the, it would be the Commerce Secretary, right? Mm-hmm. Wilbur Ross, who would be, like, most pot- potentially involved in that. And, uh, you know, he he went on and did his first interview on CNBC and, you know, said said some things that were uh, seemed to seem to sort of validate some of the Trump's rhetoric on, on trade deals. But it's not like, you know, the, the, we don't see a lot of, uh, like, protectionist uh, you know, or, or non-interventionist thus far. You know, we haven't seen uh, we, we haven't seen a whole lot on the uh, foreign policy side necessarily. Secretary of State will be the big one, but uh, it's it's not it's not what we would have expected. I think it's not what I would have expected listening to Donald Trump on the campaign trail. Well, I think it gets back to what you said before, uh, Ken, about you know whether or not there's going to be a reaction to some of this stuff from his base. And I, you know, I I honestly don't know. I mean, I think Trump is there. You know, do, there are going to be all these cabinet officials, but ultimately it it's Trump that these uh, that his fans have gravitated to, and he uh, continues to be out there, you know, talking about exactly the same things that he's been talking about the whole time. And I, I imagine. Uh, for a lot of people, you know, him uh, doing his thing will be enough. Now, there are three noteworthy cabinet appointments that still need to be made. And Ken just mentioned one. It's Secretary of State. And there has been some fun drama playing out um, in the media about who will be the Secretary of State. Is it Rudy Giuliani, who has been uh, close to Trump and a loyalist uh, throughout the campaign? Or will it be Mitt Romney, who was so critical of the Republican nominee? Where um, does that stand right now, Ken? Well, I mean, we continue to hear that Donald Trump, against all the wishes of the the, the sort of long longtime insiders who are around him, favors Mitt Romney. And it is just so shocking, as you point out. I mean, this is not a guy, Donald Trump, who uh, is, is one to uh, let go of grudges. In fact, we've seen him prosecute a lot of grudges against people who have done Far less than Mitt Romney did on the campaign trail when he came out and called him a phony and a con man. And I talked to a lot of people in Trump Tower and on the transition team who say that they felt like when Mitt Romney was saying that about Donald Trump, he was saying that about them. And uh, you could imagine that many of Donald Trump's supporters would feel that way as well. Not just that Donald Trump campaigned against the establishment and that there's no more establishment Republican figure than Mitt Romney, but that Donald Trump made Mitt Romney a foil and and Donald Trump became a foil of Mitt Romney's during the campaign in such an intensely personal way. Now, one caveat that I would say, one or a couple of things that I would throw out as potential motivations for him considering Mitt Romney in spite of that is, well, what we talked about, the, the nod to the establishment, and that's clearly something that Donald Trump has shown a desire to do to sort of make peace with the Republican establishment. But also that Donald Trump... Really, there's nothing, you know, he really likes being flattered. But the thing he likes more than being flattered is being flattered by someone who was a critic, formally, who he has won over. And this would really... Anybody seen Chris Christie and an umbrella? Right, there you go. So this is really like, uh, this would be the, the epitome of that. And then the other thing we understand is some great reporting by our new colleague, Eliana Johnson, that Trump, as he talks to people about his cabinet continues to cite this Doris Kearns Goodwin book, Team of Rivals, about Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. Now, uh, the question as to whether he's actually read the book or not remains one that I've, I've been asked a couple times by people who read Eliana's reporting. But nonetheless, he likes this idea of bringing in people who would potentially have divergent opinions. And of course, we have seen a, a, him uh, in some ways like encourage 
rifts and factionalism among 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 his subordinates. So you know whether Mitt Romney would have rifts with some of the other people who who he's brought in. You know, do foreign policy or or, or intelligence. You know, Mike Pompeo was mentioned. Even uh, Mike Flynn, actually. Right, Mike Flynn, another good example with Russia in particular mm-hmm. being an issue on which uh, Romney has been a real hardliner, whereas Flynn is not. Uh, Romney closer to the Republican establishment there. So yeah, there would be some potential for clashes among uh, the cabinet if if Romney were in there. But the the bigger one that we it all comes back to is as Scott suggested is Donald Trump and whether Donald Trump is comfortable with him. And surprisingly, I think shockingly, he does appear to be. I think in political terms, a Romney pick for Secretary of State would be the smartest move imaginable for Donald Trump because it would go so far toward calming a lot of fears on the right and also on the left that would uh, put forth the idea that, okay, uh, if nothing else, there's a grown-up in the room. uh, And I think that um, it would go a long way toward hurting uh, Trump's cause early on in his campaign if he were to nominate uh, Giuliani only because he has become such a volatile and polarizing presence in recent years. This is not the guy who uh, governed New York City that the the nation first became familiar with through his governance of uh, New York City and through his leadership through 9-11. And even then, I mean, he was not a a diplomat at all then. Right, but he was America's mayor. That's true. But he was a prosecutor, and that's the mentality they brought, very pugnacious, aggressive, and that's in some ways anathema to the, the idea of diplomacy. Now, one other point I would raise on Romney, where I think it does make a lot of sense, is... Money, fundraising. I mean, this is the guy who has the golden role, perhaps the preeminent Rolodex of major donors on the right. Trump has already talked about, you know, getting people committed to six years in his cabinet, suggesting that he is going to run for reelection. And he's also trying to raise money for the RNC, for his transition team, for the inauguration. And we understand through our reporting for an outside group that he wants to start that would be sort of like the the Trump version of organizing for America, the uh, the, uh, uh, Barack Obama outside group to push the legislative agenda. It's important to have major donors there. Romney brings that. DeVos brings that, the education secretary pick. Rebecca Mercer, who's on the transition team executive committee, is a major donor. So we have seen willingness to bring in not just uh, major donors, but extremely wealthy people. And and Romney would be a good pick from that front as well. That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought about the future fundraising angle. Honestly, when I've been thinking about Romney at state and that possibility, the thing that's been occurring to me most is the political independence, that it would remove him from the, you know, the kind of remaking of the Republican Party that still continues to go on, which he, you know, he ended up on the, the losing side in 2016, uh, as as we've been talking about. And the Secretary of State is, of all the cabinet positions, the one that is furthest removed from domestic politics, both just in terms of the role itself, but also in terms of actually what that cabinet member is allowed to do. Uh, with regard to to political stuff. There was a reason Hillary Clinton spent most of her time outside of the country after Barack Obama won. And Romney would also, I think, have just great symbolic value. I mean, for Trump, at least, it would be seen as an act of great political growth and maturity. Uh, And I think an act of humility, the kinds of things we have not seen at all from him. Before we jump out of this cabinet discussion, let's talk about the return of Goldman Sachs. Um, Goldman has been on the out and out after the recession. They're not popular, right? Um, Hillary Clinton had Goldman hung around her neck for all the private um, paid speeches that she gave. And here we have the populist president-elect 
rewarding some Goldman people. Scott, jump. Yeah, I mean, I think from a political perspective, what I've been watching with this is kind of, and I know we're going to talk about this more later, but I've been watching those uh, Democratic senators who are up for re-election in 2018 and how they're reacting to this. And and with regard to all these cabinet positions, you know, you can kind of see um, the the reorientation and the messaging and the, the strategy for the Democratic Party over the next two years coming together a little bit already, uh, not a month after Election Day, which is that they're really focusing in on the Goldman, the big bank connections in Donald Trump's cabinet, as well as, uh, uh, you know, any talk of uh, privatizing or otherwise kind of doing major changes to Medicare. And, and Social Security. And, you know, so with respect to, to Goldman, you know, Sherrod Brown, the populist Democratic senator from Ohio, who's up uh, for re-election in 2018, Donald Trump having just carried his state, uh, put out a blistering statement uh, when Steve Mnuchin was was nominated for uh, Treasury Secretary, saying that uh, this was like, it wasn't draining the swamp, it was stocking it with alligators or something along those lines. And, you know, so you can see the That's Democratic Party kind of latching onto this uh, as as a way to kind of dig themselves out a little bit about the you know entitlements and and kind of populist populism re- related to the big banks. Not just Steve Mnuchin. Steve Mnuchin, of course, being the uh, finance chair of the of the Trump campaign, who was the nominee now for uh, Treasury Secretary. But uh, you know, Donald Trump's right hand man, Steve Bannon, spent his early years at uh, at Goldman Sachs, as did uh, Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch, who's uh, now is his own hedge fund, but is one of Trump's uh, top transition advisors. And, and Gary Cohn, no? And, and Gary Cohn was just brought in uh, to, to chat with Trump for, for about an hour uh, this week. And there's a lot of speculation about him as possible director of OMB. So these are big roles and real roles on a real critical sort of set of issues for Donald Trump. You know, the economy and, and Wall Street and uh, regulation of Wall Street and this idea that the system is rigged. And so... It is yet again a place where you could see some dissatisfaction from the base who thought that they were voting for someone who's going to take on this uh, establishment and yet is stocking his cabinet with people who very much represent it. I think it's also a, a uh, an indication of his level of confidence. I mean, that is a pretty strong statement. He knows that on the other side, an animating issue for Democrats and leading Democrats is this Goldman Sachs vampire squid issue. And Trump just said... Who cares? I don't care. No, uh, I Trump, went out there and ran as an economic populist, and I'm still going to name that. Right. I mean, it's it's more than that. You're right. I mean, he ran on this. Lloyd Blankfein, the actually, you know, the the head of Goldman Sachs, was in his final ad featured as like a shadowy character. So it's it's just a, quite a reversal. I love politics. Let's bring our favorite guy, Eli Stokels, into the conversation. Eli, the man who's going from the campaign trail to the White House. Hi, Eli. Hi. Let's talk about the Trump transition team. And I have an interesting data point. It is actually a ratio. It is zero to 94. That is the ratio of at-the-mic statements to tweets that have come from the president-elect since Election Day. It is abundantly clear that this administration is taking a dramatically different approach to communications. Is this a deliberate strategy or is it incompetence? Zero to 94, a ratio in the zero? Scott, you're the Stanford guy. Is that even, I don't know anything (laughs) about math, but can you have a ratio with zero? Well, yeah, it's zero. Okay, thanks. All right, now that we've cleared that up, uh, back to your original question. I mean, I think that this there's always a level of chaos and incompetence beneath uh, whatever the sort of veneer, or the outward uh, presentation, the facade you see at Trump Tower. Uh, you know, you go up the gilded elevators, and yeah, it's a little chaotic up there. But I think that 
this is clearly a deliberate strategy. Um, and part of it is it's not a new strategy. I mean, Trump has tweeted throughout the campaign. He has gone around the media just as at the same time as he has dominated media coverage. He has functioned as the sort of news director and news producer at a number of networks simply by being able to control the news cycle and shift programming just based on whatever he shoots out in 140 characters. And when you're able to do that, we wrote a story this last week about his Twitter addiction. When you're able to, when you have 16.3 million followers, when your interactions on Twitter measure in the billions, you don't need the media as much. Now, he uses the hell out of the media. He's obsessed with seeing his face on television, uh, you know, like during the last week of the campaign when he was on his plane with Reince Priebus and Reince wanted to watch Game 7 of the World Series. Trump was like, no, I'm watching myself on TV. Forget Game 7 of the World Series that the entire country was watching. <laughs> I mean, this is a person who's obsessed with seeing himself on the news. So it's not like, oh, he's just going to tweet and he doesn't care about the news. But he doesn't need to hold press conferences. He doesn't need to sit there and answer questions. He has such a bully pulpit of his own creation. And this is before he assumes the presidency. We used to think as the presidency, the White House briefing room, the East room, right? These, that's the bully pulpit, that setting, that context, that, uh, you know, that nothing is more powerful than standing there with the presidential seal on the podium and speaking. Well, maybe that's no longer the case because Trump's bully pulpit is huge. And so I think what we're seeing in terms of how he rolls out cabinet picks, how they sort of feed the media at you know a time of the Trump transition zone choosing every morning at 10:30 on a transition phone call uh, throughout the day you know giving information to various reporters to leak letting the media sit there in the lobby and watch everybody's comings and goings and speculate on it letting them see all the the sort of photo ops that they create with Trump coming to the front door at Bedminster and waving and doing the finger gun thing at every person that walks in and out i mean it's it's not access but it's a show. And so they are able to give the media. I mean, the, until those cameras go away, until the cable outlets stop reporting on his tweets. And I don't know that that's a possibility, given that he is now the president-elect and will soon be the president. You know, the power right now resides with Donald Trump at Trump Tower. And they can sort of do this as they see fit. He is going to do a press conference uh, in a couple weeks he tweeted, of course, that was how he announced the press conference, but he's going to do one in a couple of weeks to take questions and explain how he's going to cut ties with his business interest. Um, That's on and, December and the that 15th. will really be the first time that he has taken questions That's right. in, I think, more than three, maybe close to four months uh, because he stopped doing it at the end of the campaign. And so the strategy is part that they can. And there's a, also a degree in the strategy of... You know, Donald Trump before the cameras, what's he going to say, right? Now that he's the president, the people around him are really trying to sort of button him up. I mean, when he went to the New York Times last week and did this sort of stunning sit down with 20 journalists in a room, you remember Reince Priebus reportedly came to him and said, oh, they changed the rules, you shouldn't go. And, and Reince Priebus was more or less lying to Donald Trump in an effort to prevent him from being subjected to the Inquisition at the times because he didn't really think he was ready for it. So I think there is a strategy among some close to Trump at really managing his exposure and limiting it to some degree, in part because of the control he has over his own message via Twitter, et cetera, and also in part because even the people closest to him may not think he can handle it. 
I think the fact that he hasn't held a press conference is really revealing. And uh, his his absolute refusal to adhere to any of the uh, customs or norms that we've operated under, you know, for decades uh, is is something that people need to pay very close attention to. Um, as journalists, we need to steel ourselves for um, a, a new era, a, a revolutionary era in terms of what it means for the relationship between journalists and the White House and uh, how how the media covers the the White House. I mean, it's always been an adversarial relationship. Uh, and you saw that in the, uh, you know, it's true today. You see the the Obama administration has pioneered many ways to in, uh, to bypass the media through uh, social media and through lots of other channels. Other White Houses have done the same. But I think we have to prepare ourselves for an era where the parameters within which we've operated um for the last couple decades are just non-existent. We don't have any shared values with this administration. And they would, I think they would agree with that. Journalistic values. Journalistic values. uh, But also, you know, in terms of constitutional values, I think I would say that their interpretation of the First Amendment is dramatically different probably than any of their predecessors. And I think that that many of the folks in the White House can envision a world maybe without a, uh, a press office, without press conferences without almost any interaction at all with journalists. Eli, do we know anything about the kind of operation that the Trump administration will set up in the White House for dealing with the press? What will their comms shop look like? Well, I think we know some of the people who will be involved or we can, you know, pretty confidently assume that people like Sean Spicer and Jason Miller, who have led communications, those are the voices on the 1030 a.m. transition briefing call every morning. They've been there throughout the the campaign, the, you know, the last several months, they're going to have a role in this White House in terms of directing communication strategy, whether Kellyanne Conway is a part of that. The inclination, the, the sense everybody's getting is that she's likely to take some sort of position outside the administration and not be uh, somebody who is inside uh, the administration or inside that briefing room, officially speaking for uh, the administration. But in terms of what it looks like, is there a briefing every day? Does Trump pop into the briefing room more often, you know, on a, like a weekly basis? Because well, I don't know, there are a lot of cameras there. I mean, what does he do? What does it look like? Do they do briefings every day? That remains to be seen because, again, this is a, a candidate and a uniquely sort of huge media figure uh, that he doesn't need to do it the old way. And, you know, whether and, and also I don't think it's that he doesn't need to do it the other way. I think it's that um, he can't do it effectively the other way. I mean, he has an ability to uh, own his message and to direct the media already. And when he goes to the podium and has what is always a difficult exchange with um, the members of the media who are standing this time not in some campaign rally in a stadium or a barn, but rather in the formal White House, Um, It will not look great to be belittling them and making fun of them rather than engaging in substance about a legislative agenda he would like his Congress to push through. Right. And this is sort of, I mean, a bigger question about all the trappings of the presidency and the decorum that Donald Trump has just basically shrugged at and said, I don't really care about that. So I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to be politically correct. You know, can you continue to do that once you're president? Does it look different when people are seeing a president acting like that? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think he has a lot to a lot of, you know, and, and he'll be calibrating this in real time, uh, just as he did throughout the campaign. 
you know, he has to please his supporters. His supporters love seeing him mix it up with the press, just as everybody in the press freaks out, you know, when he ditches his protective pool or when he does something different. His people, a lot of supporters love that because, you know, the press, not as a, you know, monolithic thing, not the most sympathetic uh, entity to a lot of Americans. So to some degree, it, you know, is one of the things that endears Trump to his base. Will it work with a broader swath of Americans? Will it make him look presidential? You know, I think he's going to be he's going to be figuring that out as he goes. I mean, everything he does is kind of a, you know, ad lib in one way or another. And I think the presidency and his or mad lib. But I think I think that's not going to change. Let's bring in Katie Glick for our next segment. Hi, Katie. Hi, Kristen. Our data point is 25. That's how many Democratic Senate seats are up in 2018. Ten of those 25 are in states that Trump won. Scott, what do Democrats need to do to take the Senate? Uh, they they need to wait for another election, probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm you know I'm not I'm not going to rule anything out. But the there you know on the flip side of there being 25 Democratic seats up in uh, 2018 is there's only eight Republican seats up, and they'd need to net three. Uh, and you know. After Nevada, it's pretty slim pickings in terms of ones that Democrats can attack. You're talking Arizona and then like Texas. So so no, I mean, the, the, the Senate map in 2018 is going to be focused on red state Democrats. And in particular, um, you know, there's 10 in, in Trump states, like you mentioned. And then there's but there's a, a subset of those who are in like really, really Trump states, like really Romney states, uh, really McCain states. You know, we're talking West Virginia Montana, North Dakota, uh, Missouri, uh, and you know those those members are already like we mentioned they're kind of positioning themselves in uh, during the transition on some of these cabinet appointments for Donald Trump to kind of try and show that they can be bipartisan but also show that that you know they're they're fighters for democratic values. I mean we saw this week Heidi Heitkamp, the Democratic senator from North Dakota, uh, in a transition meeting uh, with with Trump uh, and putting out a statement about how you know whatever job she's doing, uh, <laughs> she she wants to serve the interests of North Dakotans. And now even if she doesn't end up taking a cabinet position, it, it really redounds to her benefit to have taken a meeting with Trump and to to show, as she argued in her campaign ads in 2012 when she outran President Obama by like 20 points, uh, that she's going to work with both parties where it's good for North Dakota and and oppose both parties where it's bad. And but but it there, there's a real balancing act that she and these others are going to be doing over the next two years to get ready for this. Yeah, it's really a brutal map. I was looking at the math the other day, and you've got 25 seats that Democrats have to defend. 10 of them in states that Trump carried, and then four of them in, in states that Hillary Clinton carried, but she carried them with less than 50% of the vote. So it's really kind of a grim it's map. Like the Michigans and Wisconsin. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And so uh, what oh, that... Oh, sorry. No, she lost those. Well, I mean, some of the other states where she was under 50% and still managed to a plurality victory are the kinds of states I'm talking, which which kind of shows you some some weakness there. Uh, and I think it's going to be really reflected in the confirmation proceedings. I mean, in, a, in a, maybe a normal uh, presidential year, or I mean, I'm sorry, in a normal year, you might have somebody like Jeff Sessions get much more flack than he will now. There will be far too many Democratic senators who are afraid to buck Donald Trump this early on after those numbers. Right. And I mean, if you are talking about Texas as, you know, being in the top three, you know, so-called pickup opportunities, I mean, that, that really speaks to the extent to which Democrats are going to be in trouble, uh, it appears at this yeah. point, at least. Ted, Ted Cruz is probably going to 
probably going to be all right. Yes. <laughs> it's funny because it was not a week before Election Day that you know there was some talk about Texas being less red than it used to be. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Well, and, and in fact, it's you know gotten increasingly so. Um, and long-term, Republicans still have a lot of problems when it comes to diversifying the party and when it comes to uh, engaging you know rapidly growing Latino communities in states like Arizona, in states like Texas. But um, you know, certainly given uh, the way that things went this cycle, and and, and then of course um, the, the way that midterms um, often shake out in, in terms of uh, you know conservative activists being the ones who are uh, most motivated to turn out, you know, it does not look like that's going to be the year when, when the tide's going to change for them. Yeah, Trump Trump actually um, won Texas by nine percentage points, which is fine. It's a comfortable victory, but it's down from sixteen for Romney in, right. in twenty twelve, which is really interesting. Was that all Latino vote? Uh, I'm sure some of it was. You know, I'm I'm not sure. Was there an exit poll in Texas this time around? There wasn't in 2012, and so judging the change would be would be difficult, uh, even if there was. But I imagine it's some some Latino vote, and then also there there are a lot of like big white collar suburbs mm-hmm. in Texas around Houston and and Dallas and Austin, and where we saw uh, Trump lose ground. Uh, even while winning compared to how Mitt Romney did in, in 2012. And so I, I imagine it's it's one of those combo stories. How soon, Charlie, into 2017 are we talking about 2018? January 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know the way this town operates. I think everybody is going to be talking about the Senate and how grim that landscape looks like. And we're, we're going to see it very early on in January because I think what happens at first is the left is going to be very upset uh, at how compliant the uh, Democratic Democratic senators are with some of these Trump nominees. Uh, the, some of these Trump nominees are going to drive progressive bananas, and they're going to expect fire and brimstone confirmation hearings. They're not going to get that because these senators will be afraid of what's going to happen in 2018. And so that's when this is all going to start. Katie, jump in here. As you look at... Um how politics is going to be playing out on the Hill and the legislative agenda that we're beginning to get a feel for. Um, How do you see 2018 playing into not really just the Senate, but what's happening in the House? Well, I mean, to the extent, you know, especially uh, looking at the Senate, but, but certainly this applies to some House members as well. I mean, you look at the people who are from either tough districts or, you know, tough states, all the, the, those red state senators in particular that, that we talked about. I mean, they're going to be in a bind from day one. Um, the, you know, one thing that's interesting is that they may actually be uh, courted, you know, somewhat heavily by some of these Republicans who actually see uh, an opening to get them on board for 60 votes for, for some of these uh, priorities that progressives certainly may not like, but that some of these red state Democrats might want to be able to point to um, as they're showing that, you know, they put, you know, the, the, the country have had a party. We're constantly talking about House and Senate and we're done talking about president for a while. But let's talk about Republican held governorships. Twenty seven of them are up in 2017. That's not a small number, Scott. What is what is the state of play in the gubernatorial races? Yeah, I think and we wrote a story to, to that effect this week that the, the gubernatorial races are really the Democratic Party's. Uh, kind of best first shot of clawing back some power. Uh, and it, it also has the added benefit of the, the these races are the first uh, real opportunity to elect people who are going to play a role in redistricting the next time around. So this eventually will rebound into the congressional landscape. But um, Democrats have just really, really fallen out of power at, at the state level and to the extent where there are there are really about a dozen 
uh, realistic targets among these 27 uh, Republican-held governorships that are up in, in 2018. And we're talking about states ranging from Vermont and New Hampshire to Florida and Nevada. And then, critically, uh, all through the upper Midwest, where Democrats are really kind of worrying right now that they've forgotten how to win there. Uh, and they're going to have the opportunity to chase the governorship in Michigan. It's going to be open. Ohio is going to be open. Uh, Wisconsin could be open, or you'd have Scott Walker going for a third term. Uh, stuff like that. And where you know, not so long ago... Democrats, you know, Barack Obama carried all those states. They all have Democratic senators who who won uh, in in 2012, and so they're they're going to get an opportunity in these governors' races to claw back some power and kind of uh, maybe promote some new voices within the party. Well, Democrats which I think have is really, really been getting crushed at the state level, right? I mean, this is it would be a surprise if they could turn it around, no? Uh, turn around all the way, yes. I mean, the, they've lost close to a thousand state legislative seats mm-hmm. around the country during the Obama administration. And, you know, with that, a lot of governing power. There's been a lot of conservative policy enacted in the states uh, over the last six years. Uh, but, you know, you, you have to start somewhere to, to turn it around. And, and um, you know, especially because some of these Republican legislators got the opportunity to draw their own districts after 2010, uh, statewide, the governor's races may, may offer, you know, again, the best opportunity to just jump back in to some of these places. I think the great hollowing out of the Democratic Party during the Obama era is one of the great overlooked stories of the last decade. Uh, it's, it's, as Scott mentioned, just astonishing what's happened outside uh, the Beltway to the Democratic Party. Uh, I mean, if you do look at that map in 2018, it does look very promising in a lot of ways uh, for Democrats, at least at the the statehouse level, in part because you've got a bunch of governors who have served for uh, two terms there. And oftentimes you see in states, this isn't a universal rule, but oftentimes people uh, people will vote for the opposite party just to change things up. So just like they do at the presidential level. Exactly. It's so very difficult to, to hold it for very long. Right. So you've got that vulnerability, but then you've also got the three uh, governors in very, very blue states. You've got Illinois, Maryland, and Massachusetts. Now, on the one hand, the caveat is those are extremely popular Republican governors, but those are extremely blue states, and it won't take much to mount a tough challenge. But the the thing I keep going back to every time I see, because I've seen some of these stories, and um, and and they're usually very good, especially the the one we did uh, about <laughs> Democrat uh, Democratic opportunities in 2018. But um, it does seem to me that one big flaw that Democrats have is they just cannot pay attention to what happens outside the beltway. Their focus is always on, as a party, the focus is always on the federal levers of power because that's where they think the most important functions of government are coming from and happening in. They think it's all about Washington. They will never invest enough at the state level. They don't invest in state legislative candidates. They don't care as much. And this is a problem they'll tell you with the donors. The donors want to give to Senate races. They don't want to give to House races. They certainly don't want to give to legislative races. They didn't pay enough attention despite warnings to redistricting, and now they're completely screwed in the House because of that. And this is sort of an an over and over again problem with the Democrats, which is they refuse to pay attention to what's happening outside the Beltway and invest in the farm team and all of the other uh, state house functions. And they've got to figure out a message, too. I mean, there is such a divide in the Democratic Party right now, you know, between um, the sort of ascendant, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type wing of the party, and then, you know, the establishment that's trying to reckon with with, uh, their loss. And then you see people like Tim Ryan emerging, who who are really stressing, you know, the need to reach out to middle America. Uh, And and obviously, Nancy Pelosi has been around, uh, uh, you know, in leadership for a while, certainly pushing back on that message and on that challenge to her. But 
you know, it's, it's going to be interesting for a lot of these Democratic candidates running in some of these more red states, um, you know, whether that's uh, if, if for the Senate, whether that's for governor um, or, or at the state level, like the extent to which they are able to define their own message and also potentially break away from a national party that seems to have really lost touch with. I, th- I think that's so important. Yeah. I think that's so important. And I think, again, that's why I'm really starting to look at these governor's races as opposed to the Senate, because it's it's all incumbents for Democrats in, in the Senate at this point. I mean, you know, some of those people may retire, but these governor's races are open. They're very high profile. And ultimately, you know, politics ends up being very personality driven. You know, mm-hmm. D- Donald Trump is changing the Republican Party by force of personality over the last year and a half. And uh, Democrats lack, you know, they, they've been driven to low numbers in every sort of office, House, Senate, governors, state legislators. They need some new voices. Now, part of the problem with this is that they don't really have a huge bench of, you know, proven statewide elected officials to uh, to recruit from for these governorships. So that could be a problem. But, you know, if they if they can find some compelling voices to help, that's going to go a long way toward helping them figure this out. But nobody has more septuagenarian talent than the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> Final data point of the show, 134. The number of votes Nancy Pelosi got to keep her leadership position, Charlie Matessian, how did Nancy Pelosi keep her leadership position after the walloping that the Democrats just got? Yeah, it's a good good question. Uh, I mean, I, I think it was a real show of weakness, even though she won, you know, roughly two thirds. Uh, but I mean, it, it's also a show of uh, she is a powerful leader within that party. And she is an iron fisted leader. She mints money for Democrats. They're already worried about what happens once she leaves that post. And she also has a real strong, durable base of support, uh, partly because the largest Democratic delegation is her home state, but also because of the historic nature of her role, whether it was a speaker in the minority or not. But, you know, it goes to show that uh, I think the idea that she doesn't that she only could win two thirds of her caucus just goes to show you how much it has shrunk in the Pelosi era. Uh, I mean, look at the, the the size of the Democratic caucus now compared to when she took over as speaker. And uh, I think that had it been a lesser politician, they would have uh, been kicked out of the post much sooner. Uh, yeah. Just to what Charlie said, the the role of the the fundraising that she does uh, for the party and for vulnerable members of her party is incredibly important here. Um, but the, you know, I, th- I think going forward, part of the reason there's this unrest also is that she and other uh, members of Democratic leadership are, have held down these spots for so long that the kind of up and comers below them are really not getting a chance. We saw just this year, Chris Van Hollen, who was seen by many as a potential future speaker, decided to run for Senate in uh, Maryland and said, Javier Becerra, who uh, has been seen as another potential rising Democratic star for a long time, uh, just today left the House. He's going to be the next attorney general of California uh, pending you know, a- a- approval by the state legislature there. Uh, there is just not a lot of opportunity and uh, coupled with the, the shrinking uh, size of, of the caucus, although we should note that the House Democrats did pick up a half dozen seats this time, nowhere near what they need to get back to the majority, but they, they picked up a handful of seats. But the, the size and the, the set nature of the top is just really uh, hemming in a lot of Democrats who want to be doing more in Congress. Yeah, I think the thing that's uh, so interesting about Pelosi, and it's really emblematic of of the rifts and the pressure that the Democratic Party is facing more broadly, is is where the challenge came from. It came from the right. You know, typically when there's a dissatisfaction in the ranks of a party, it's from the from the fringe, from the sort of more extreme part of the base. Uh, but in Pelosi's case, 
came from the center, came from Tim Ryan, came from a sort of younger, you know, the two things. It came from younger members who would think that it's time for a change. And then specifically from centrist members who think that the reason, I think a lot of people think this, the, one of the sort of key vulnerabilities that led, that allowed Trump to beat Hillary Clinton was this weakness among uh, sort of Rust Belt, you know, working class white voters who the party has drifted away from and is seen as sort of instead more catering to the the coastal elite of which Pelosi is a poster child. So we see this also playing out in the race for the uh, for the DNC chair, the the leader, a very tenuous uh, as as Charlie put it, uh, front runner Keith Ellison. Uh, is from one of the the flyover states, so to speak, Minnesota, but is is nonetheless regarded as a real lefty. And the fact that he, you know, is is you know could could emerge as the front runner, has emerged as the front runner, suggests that just like the the rejection of Ryan and the uh, election of Pelosi, that the that the Democratic Party maybe at this earlier juncture turning away from trying to sort of out-Trump Trump and appeal to these white working-class voters in the upper Midwest and instead go and become a more oppositional liberal party. Uh, obviously, the, we're still a long way off in the DNC race, but if Ellison is picked, I think that would be among the messages. I'm glad you mentioned the where question because I think that's a really important undercurrent here because this is also very much uh, about the politics of place as much as it is about ideology, meaning uh, Democrats, especially the ones who aren't from these states, are very aware that, you know, roughly uh, a third of all House Democratic seats are coming from three states, Massachusetts, California and New York. And so in, in the American mindset, if you don't live in those states, you think that represents a certain brand of the Democratic Party. Uh, and that can work against you if you're not from one of those three states. And uh, Mahoning Valley, where Tim Ryan came from, is also, uh, I think, very symbolic. This is a traditional Democratic stronghold, uh, a place that has really uh, struggled uh, by th- as globalization has taken hold. Uh, and it is symbolic that Tim Ryan hailed from that area. It's a place that nearly flipped over to Donald Trump. He was very strong in that whole uh, part of Ohio. And it also reminds you that back, remember the last time the Democrats had their butts kicked like this in 2010? Keep in mind that Nancy Pelosi's opposition also came from a similarly uh, affected constituency. It was Heath Schuler who was essentially representing all the Southern blue dogs who got cleaned out and had their clocks cleaned in that 2010 race. And now, of course, you know, Democrats are wishing that they had sort of more of a blue dog type of appeal, uh, you know, which is the demographic that Donald Trump did so well in. That's it for us. Goodbye, Katie Glick. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. Scott Bland, goodbye. Farewell. Goodbye, Eli Stokels. Goodbye, Kristen. Charlie Matessian, do you have work to do? Bye, Kristen. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and to you, our listeners. Talk to you next week. 